This morning, I'm glad that we have with us a, a friend of this congregation and a, a good friend of mine, uh, Richard Foth. Richard Foth has served as a pastor, as a college president. For the last 17 years, he's been walking through Washington, D.C. with friends, encouraging people in Washington, D.C. who need to know how much Jesus truly cares for them, and not because of their power, and not because of their position, but simply because Jesus loves them. And so Dick's been doing that for these 17 years, and then recently has moved to Fort Collins, Colorado, where he helps mentor a, a church staff, and also walks with leadership within Fort Collins, Colorado, that, the leadership of that city, while still working in Washington, D.C., and this morning, we've asked him to come and talk about serving as he has seen it take place in D.C. and as he's seen it happen throughout the world. The verb is serve. And just say that word with me. The verb is serve. Say that. Say it louder. And Dick Foth is going to talk to us about it this morning. Would you please welcome Dick Foth? Exactly. Now I get to say it. Good morning. It's great to be back at Erie First. We have a long-standing relationship, even though I, I don't come like every month or something, but once every 18 months or so or a year, I show up here just to bother you. And um, I was in Washington, D.C. with four friends three weeks ago, and we went to the Southeast White House, which is in Southeast D.C. It's the most underserved part of D.C., and I said to the friends, you see this house here? You should have seen it 14 years ago. It's totally different now, and in part it's totally different because some friends from Erie, Pennsylvania came down and transformed this house. I'll never forget the first week the first team came. There were 30 of you, had your own cook. I used to go over, I didn't like the guys, but I really liked the cook. No, I didn't. I liked the guys too, but it was wonderful food and and um, the architect who was helping look at some plans for the house, it was an old house built in 1910 that needed tremendous help, said that these folks did $45,000 worth of work in two days. So you have an ongoing partnership with Sammy Morrison and Scott Dimmick and the folks at the Southeast White House, and I want to thank you again for that and for the way you served in that, in that place in that time and the ongoing relationship you have with them. I've said this a number of times here before, but I'm big on perspective. Where you stand, how you see something, makes all the difference. For me to stand here, I have one view of you and you have a view of me. For me just to move a couple of feet here, that's a little different. For me to step down one step, seven inches. I'm still approximately where I was, but this is a pretty different view. If I come down 14 inches, it's, it's kind of different. If I step down, you know, 28 inches or 30 or whatever it is and over here, this is really a different view, but I'm not all that far from where I was. It doesn't take much adjustment to change your entire perspective of your surroundings, yourself, so forth. I want to talk about two worlds this morning. One of, one of the worlds is planet Earth. It's the obvious one. You read it in the Great Commission, go into all the world, preach this good news, teaching folks to observe what I've taught you, Jesus said, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's, that's what we call the Great Commission. It has to do with the big world. The big world weighs like 1,000 trillion metric tons. 
I read that this morning on Google just to make sure that I was close. If you go around it, it's almost 25,000 miles around. That's one world. But there's another world that at some levels is as important or more important than that big world. And that's the three-pound world between your ears. The world that is the size of a cantaloupe. It's called your brain. The four and a half inches between your ears makes all the difference how you see that big one, how you see the 6.7 billion people on that big one. Whether you understand that there's a Mongolia and there's a Berlin and there's a Tierra del Fuego in Latin America, it helps you understand that, helps me understand that. The hidden one, because the other one's exposed, the hidden one between my ears shapes the obvious one. It impacts the obvious one. My view of a God I can't see comes from this area between my ears. My view of people I can't see but I just hear about comes from this four and a half inches between my ears. Oliver Wendell Holmes, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, some years ago said, and you've heard this, that a mind shaped by a new idea never goes back to the same shape. A mind stretched by a new idea never goes back to the same shape. Well, when I look at how God does things, he can do things any way he wants. And he keeps tossing out things when you read this text. He, they have been written down, they have been spoken. He can do it any way he wants. And he shows us how to do whatever it is. Some years ago, when I was a young pastor near the University of Illinois, I was, the church was growing. It was a church plant that started with 10 university students. And, but the first three years were like pulling hens to I mean, it was slugging it out, tough work. And there were about 75 folks. And, and I, was, I was preaching and doing all those things. And I preached Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and saying all these things and telling the folks what to do. And I was frustrated because we didn't have a lot of action. <clears throat> compaction or action we didn't we had some but not like I wanted you know emphasis on the I and one day I was having conversation with the Lord and said Lord I you know I'm telling the folks what to do but it's just we're just not getting the traction that we need and he said essentially to me Foth why don't you stop telling those people what to do and start telling them who I am let me tell them what to do I'm thinking that's a good deal so I started preaching on the character of God, this I am God. I am the God who creates. I am the God who provides. I am the God who redeems. I am the God who goes before you. I am the bright and morning star. I am the rose of Sharon. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am living bread. I am living water. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the beginning. You know that God. And things started happening. This morning I want to talk about the God who is the heart of service. This is what he says about himself. If you have your Bibles this morning, turn with me to Mark the 10th chapter, the 42nd verse. Jesus lived on this planet for 33 years. I told the folks yesterday 
in the Library of Congress, which has about 118 million volumes, it's the largest library, at least in the United States, perhaps in the world, there are more books about this 33-year-old Jewish rabbi carpenter who was executed by the state 2,000 years ago called Jesus of Nazareth. More books about him in the Library of Congress than any other person. Abraham Lincoln is a distant second. And the things he says, not just the things he does, but the things he says are powerful. If you want to stretch that four and a half inches inside your head, if you want to make it larger, not physically, but if you want to stretch it so it can never go back to the same shape, read some of his thoughts. Listen, listen to what he says to his 12 disciples. There are two of the disciples that are sort of jockeying for position. I get that. I've done that. They said, we'd like a particular place with you. And, and he said, well, you can't. That's not for me to say. The other 10 guys heard about it, and it says... They were, they were sort of jealous. They were upset. And Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who were regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercised authority over them. Not with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. So he's saying to followers of Jesus, people like us, if you want to be great, you need to be a servant. And whoever wants to be first must be a slave, must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So that's a fact. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. That's a fact. Here's a challenge. Turn with me, if you will, to Philippians, the second chapter. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Philippi. That's a, it's a little town just north, north of Thessaloniki, Greece. It's, it no longer exists, just a pile of rubble. But this is what he says to the folks at Philippi. Chapter 2, Philippians, letter to the Philippians. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, there's that word, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Very specific. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Now, we already know the fact about Jesus, that he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So Paul is referencing that. He says, let's look again at Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. That is, he didn't feel that his stature or position was something to be held on to, because leadership doesn't come from position. Leadership comes from heart but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." So here, on the one hand, you have the fact. On the other hand, 
we have the challenge. This is, this is Jesus' mission statement. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Some of you work with companies that have mission statements. Sometimes when you go to personal retreats, they'll say, why don't you write your life mission statement? Why don't you put down in a sentence what you're all about? Well, Jesus put down in a sentence what he was about. Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, I can't do the life a ransom for many part. We don't need to do that again. It was done once for all. We just celebrated at the Lord's table. That part's done. But the expression of his character goes on, and it goes on through us and in us. Even our language gives us away. We talk about service, and I don't mean the service. I don't mean this assembly. But we say to people, so have you had... Have you had military service? Like, have you served in the military? It's interesting language to use. This idea that those who put themselves in harm's way in places around the world who serve in the United States military are in fact doing just that, serving. That's how it is. When I, over the years, I've gone to the Pentagon a fair amount to meet with folks, and they'll always ask me, Dick, did you serve in the military? I say, well, not exactly. I, have one, I had one semester of Air Force ROTC at Cal Berkeley, and they just rolled their eyes because that's like an oxymoron. That, that can't be service or military, either, either way. But the fact is that, as I mentioned yesterday to some of the leadership team here, that, that I have a friend. He served for five years as the head of the Navy, Chief of Naval Operations. And when he talked to his people, to his flag officers, the admirals, this is what he would talk about. He would say, when a young person comes and raises his or her hand, and they take the oath, they pledge to protect the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, domestic and foreign, and to obey the commands of all the officers or people above them, all the way to the commander-in-chief, that's what they commit to the nation. And he would say to his flag officers, and what do we commit to them? And the answer to that was, we commit to give you the very best training, the very best leadership, the very best equipment anywhere on the planet. And we also commit to help you understand that to serve is a noble thing. To serve is a noble thing. Jesus exemplifies that. Jesus is the model for how, that, for how that works. Well, here's a twist. Let me read you one other verse. This is found in Ephesians, the fifth chapter. Ephesians, the fifth chapter, and the 21st verse. Listen to what it says. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Because you revere and fear and love God, submit to each other. Now, see, I can handle the word serve. I, I sort of get that. But when you toss that submit word in there, that's, that maybe puts my teeth on edge. Whenever I tar- start talking about submission and authority, and in any context, particularly in marriage seminars, you can almost hear the women in the group start sucking air through their teeth. They're, they're just, oh, great, one other man to come and tell me about submission. Well, this is just an interesting idea here. 
submit, this says submit to each other out of reverence for God and submission is the most powerful concept in the New Testament. The idea of submission is the most powerful idea in the New Testament. I, some years ago, uh, a woman came to see me in my office. She walked in and I said, how can I help you? And she said, I'm struggling at my house. And I said, okay, I said, do you, do you have a biblical marriage? And she looked at me and literally gritted her teeth and said, oh yeah, I'm submitted. I said, you're submitted? She said, yeah, I'm submitted. I said, lady, you're not submitted, you're a slave. Slavery is something someone else does to you. Submission is something I do to myself. It's always found with the reflexive pronoun. Jesus humbled himself and took on the form of a servant, even to a death on a cross. Submit yourselves one to another. Humble yourself before God and he will highly exalt you. Why is that? Because I, I have this idea that submission is kind of giving up my life. I would, I would suggest to you that submission, when you submit or serve someone else, God or someone else, when you do that, when I do that, I am most in control of my life than I have ever been. Some years ago, there were some IRA guys in Northern Ireland who were put in prison, in Mays Prison, and one of them, several of them actually, went on a hunger strike and starved themselves to death. What they were saying to the crown, what they were saying to the British government was, you can put me against the wall and shoot me, you can flog me, you can flay me raw, you can keep me in prison my whole life, but you can never make me submit. Because submission is not something someone can make you do. Submission is something I do to myself. And when you voluntarily step up, when you voluntarily go the extra mile, that's the power. Here is Jesus who, say, who says, by law, the Roman soldier can make you carry his pack a mile. Whatever it is, he can, he, he can make you do that by law. They had mile markers on those Roman roads. Here's a Jewish guy going along and the, and the Roman soldier says, hey, Ben Ezra, come over here. Carry my load. So he carries it a mile. He said, okay, that's all I can require at the end of the mile. And the guy says, where are you going? He says, oh, I'm going, going up the mountain a couple more miles. He says, oh, I'm going that way. I'll carry it for you. And he says, what? He says, I'm going that way. I'll just carry it for you. You can hear the Roman guy say, stupid Jewish. What the? Well, okay, I'm go. Let's do it. The first mile, the Roman soldier's in charge. That's slavery. The second two miles, or the next two miles, the Jewish guy's in charge. We always told our kids, whenever you get a job, show up early, stay late. In that middle part, you're an employee. In the early and the late part, you're your own guy. There's something powerful about voluntary servitude. There's something powerful that's, that's godlike about submitting once. Here is, here is Jesus. He can do it any way he wants. He can, he can just say the word and we would be redeemed. He didn't have to do the cross thing and all that. Kind of, he could just say it and forgive us. But he chooses to let go of position, let go of how we think about him as God, and come and serve us in a way that ransoms us. He serves us in a way that sets us free. How I think about that 
is not shaped by external forces. How I think about that depends on the world between my ears, the three-pound cantaloupe-sized four and a half inch wide thing between my ears as I'm thinking about this your mind is processing it you know as I'm talking your mind is saying well let me see how would that work if I did that submission self-sacrificial initiative is the most powerful idea in scripture it's almost like Jesus say says to the father and the spirit how do we redeem a fallen world how do we how do we reconnect and restore and transform a fallen people. Romans 5.8 says it this way. This is love. This is what love looks like. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still slogging around, trying to find our way, trying to keep from drowning, if you will, Christ died for us. We live in a culture that says, I'll do something for you if you show me what you got. I'll do something for you now. What do you bring to the party? We've already heard it said. We've already celebrated it. What I bring to the party is Zippo, nothing. Well, I actually bring some stuff to the party, all of my lusts, all of my bad choices, all of my mistakes, all of my rebellion, all of my junk. I bring that that to the party, and Jesus says, okay, that'll do. Why don't we take that, and we'll trade you straight across for all of my goodness, all of my power, all of my peace, all of my grace. But in order to do that, he submits himself to a process to a system, to a group of people who are evil, who think they win when they nail him to the cross. They say, there, take that. That'll take care of your rightness. I can't stand it. And he says, fine, if that's the way it's going to be, that's the way I'll love you. He turns it inside out and redeems us with it. I don't know how to respond to that except to say, I'll throw my life in. If you served, put your spirit in me so I have that same heart. If you served, let me find ways. Let me think in this little world between my ears. Let me, let me think about how I can do that in small ways and large. How can I submit myself? How can I send myself under, which is literally what that means? How can I do that in ways that changes the world? To serve is noble. To submit frees everybody. I, uh, I love the thought that service and submission unlock, unlocks doors and lets people out. I, I have lots of questions about life. I've got to admit to that. I ask, uh, how does that work? Folks flooded in here yesterday morning for Nathan's memorial service. A lot of people in the room, a lot of people in this room today were saying, why did that happen? This time last week, he was vital and alive and we could talk. And now I have to wait to talk to him to the other side. When will peace come? I mean, there are all kinds of questions we have. The questions I ask of another set up how I can serve them. I want to give you two questions and then I'm going to close. I'm going to give you two questions that will change the course of your life. Two simple questions. If you're taking notes, write this down. Not because they're my questions, just because they're good questions. One of them I shared yesterday when I was talking to the leaders. If I'm going to serve someone, I need to know how they need to be served. 
I need to know who they are in part. You don't always have to know who they are, but if over time you're going to serve somebody, you can serve more specifically if you know who they are. Here's the first question. Where were you born and brought up? And I told the folks yesterday, it's a non-threatening question. Everybody was born somewhere. Everybody was brought up someplace. Okay. When you ask that question, that leads to a whole series of other things. It leads to talking about, what was it like there? What did you do for fun as a kid? Where was the coolest place in your town to go when you were a teenager? Who were your friends? Did you have any siblings? Where are you in the mix? Did you know your grandma and grandpa on either side? Were they in the same town? How did, I mean, once you ask that question, it takes you into that person's world if you choose to pursue it. If you choose to pursue it, if you choose to pursue it, the opportunity for you to serve starts popping up because you start making connections with where they are. Here is a God that comes and describes where the son Jesus was born and brought up. I think he did that so we could know him. I think he did that so we could connect with him because everybody was born and brought up somewhere. That, that would be, if your brain were a television, that question, where, you were, where were you born and brought up, that would, be the, that would be the Discovery Channel. That would be the National Geographic Channel. That would be the History Channel in your brain, in that cantaloupe-sized unit that's between your ears. Second question is this. Anything I can do for you? Anything I can do for you? It takes all kinds of forms. It could be anything we can pray for. I was having dinner with some friends last night, and when we got done, one of the persons in the parking lot said to me as we went to the parking lot, said, anything we can pray for, Dick? That's, that's one way of saying anything I can do for you. When, when I get to know you, and I get to understand where you came from and how you got to this place, it helps me, helps me understand what I can do if there's something to be done. It doesn't have to be like prayer. It could be just anything. I was telling the folks the story of walking into my father-in-law's house in Modesto, California, and he, the, the, the kitchen in their little house was just off the entryway. And I'd come in, and he'd say, Hey, Foth, how are you? He always called me Foth. I'd say, I'm good, Father Blake. His name was Roy Blakely. I called him Father Blake. I'd say, I'm good. And he would often ask me this question. How about a milkshake? And I'd say, no, no, watching my weight, can't be doing the milkshake thing. He'd say, chocolate good? I'd say, perfect. <laughs> you can tell I, I was there, you know. I, you say, what does that have to do with spiritual life? What does chocolate milkshakes have to do with spiritual life? Some of you are saying it's very It's a moment. It's a very <laughs> spiritual thing. But the fact is, his question was, I'd like to do something for you. What could I do for you? Anything I can do for you. If you ask that question authentically, it changes your life. If you say to somebody, anything I can pray for, for 17 years in Washington, D.C., when we have conversations, oftentimes we'll end with, Senator, um, is there anything we can pray for? Sir, is there anything? Ma'am, is there anything we can pray for? In 17 years, whether the person was a believer, a follower of Jesus or not, never one time, not once in 17 years, did anybody ever say no. 
Almost always they would say, pray for my family, because when you're in public life, your family takes it in the teeth a lot of time. This would be, um, this might not be a channel in your brain, like on TV, but when you ask the question, anything I can do for you, it has the potential of an extreme home makeover. That something could happen in that person's life and in our relationship that would totally transform it. Simple questions. Where were you born and brought up? Anything I can do for you? I will guarantee you this. If you ask particularly the second question, but both questions, I will guarantee you this, and I can't guarantee you many things, but I can guarantee you this. If you ask that question authentically, if you with intentionality choose to serve and submit to somebody in that way, I would guarantee you three things. One is your life will always have meaning. Secondly, you will always have friends. And thirdly, you'll never be out of work. Can I say that again? Three things I can guarantee you if you choose to serve by asking anything I can do for you. Your life will always have meaning. You will always have friends. And you'll never be out of work. People who serve are dynamic people. People who ask that kind of question are a joy to be around. They're attractive. They're magnetic. They're a kick in the head in a good sense. I have a friend who's now with Jesus. I think I've told this story before here, but I love this story, so I don't care. Because it captures this idea. There was a young woman who was brought up in Dayton, Ohio. Born about 1900. In 1924, when she was 24 years old, she went to a meeting with a woman evangelist by the name of Hattie Hammond. Hattie Hammond had traveled the world and she had come back from India and she challenged these young people to do something about the poor people and the kids in India. And that night, Anna Tomasek was totally touched. And the Lord called her that night to India. It was very specific. She was engaged to a young doctor or a young medical student. She went to him because she knew that probably he didn't have that same call even though he was following Jesus. And she knew that if she broke up with him, that was in the day when you didn't get on a plane and just fly to Delhi in 12 hours or 20 hours and turn around and come back. If you went, you were a lifer. And she knew the chances of her marrying, which she wanted to do, were going to be greatly diminished if she made this choice. She went to him. They decided to break the engagement. She never married. She ended up going to India. She had physical challenges. She had tuberculosis, and the Lord healed her instantly of tuberculosis. She then had cancer, and she didn't get healing in the same way. She had had seven surgeries for cancer, but she was cancer-free when I met her. I met her in 1973 in Bangalore, South India. She had served for 52 years at that time on the border of Nepal. She and a co-worker, several co-workers, had a little orphanage for folks up in that very poor area. 
They had just discovered that she had filaria in her legs. Filaria is what we call elephantitis, where the little critters get in your lymph system, lay their eggs, and makes your legs swell up. So she was being treated at Mark Bentain's Hospital in Calcutta for that. And, but she was there that night, and she was sitting back in about the third row from the back. She couldn't wear shoes. Her feet were swollen. She had slippers on. And at the end of the service, the guy who was speaking said, Anna Tomasek, if you would give 52 years to Jesus in India again, if you would serve him in that way, and serve the people of India in that way. I want you to come down here to the front. She came down to the front on these swollen, slippered feet, shuffling along, and as she came past us, tears were streaming down her cheeks, and she was saying, I'd do it a million times. I'd do it a million times. I'd do it a million times. Well, we were just wiped out, and I, I said, if I ever have a chance to have her come and speak, I will. And not long after that, I was invited to be president of this little college in California, and I had Anna Thomas come and speak for a week, and she didn't stand up and speak like I am. I'd have her sit up on the platform, and we'd just have conversation. And the last morning, we were talking, and when you, when you meet somebody who's been around the sun by that time, 80, 85 times, whatever it was, they just learn stuff. They, they learn stuff about life, not just spiritual stuff, just stuff about life when you've been around the sun that many times. And that's good stuff to hear too. I asked her about that. I said, what, what have you learned about life? She said, well, you know, in 1943, the Japanese were coming up through Burma. And so the U.S. said all expatriates, all U.S. citizens out of India. And so I was a nurse and they made me a lieutenant in the army. And I served on a troop transport as a nurse coming home, bringing GIs home. And uh, in 1945, when the war was over, I was in New York City. I, I went to the to the army base there and I went to the young lieutenant at the desk and I said uh, I'm Anna Tomasek U.S. Army brought me home two years ago and I'd like the U.S. Army to take me back he said oh man I don't I don't I don't have that authority to do that you have to talk to the captain went to the captain I'm Anna Tomasek you brought me home two years ago from India and I want the U.S. Army to he said ma'am I don't have that authority and went to the major same deal finally went to the commanding officer lieutenant colonel on the base said colonel the United States Army brought me home from India two years ago, and I just came to tell you that the United States Army will take me back. And he said, the, she said, the colonel snapped to attention, saluted, and said, yes, ma'am, we will. She reached over and patted my arm and said, President Foth, never talk to anybody lower than a colonel. See, there's stuff. You just learn stuff about life. You know, you just learn stuff. But I said, give me a snapshot of what it meant, what it meant to you, a picture of what it meant to 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 give 52 years, to submit yourself to harsh circumstances, to submit yourself to a culture that you didn't understand, and to serve the folks, the people of India and Jesus in that way. She told this story, and I close with this. She said, one morning, my coworker and I, we had 23 kids in our little house and little orphanage. S seven or eight of them were nursing infants, and we heard a knock on the door. So I went to the door, and there stood a man. He had a bundle just wrapped in cloth and I looked and it was the little brown face of a brand new a newborn baby girl it was a it was a newborn Indian gypsy baby girl some gypsies had come through during the night and in the dung heap they had no sewer system in that village just a just an open latrine a dung heap outside of town they came through the baby was born during the night and a man had gone out early in the morning and when he went out there he saw something moving under some leaves at the base of a tree, brushed away the leaves, and there in the dirt was this newborn Indian gypsy baby girl, umbilical cord and placenta, still attached, thrown away. In that culture at that time, girls were disposable items, just threw them away. 
And the man knew that Mama G, respected mother, would, would care for this child. So he wrapped her up and brought her to, to Anna Tomasek. She said, Dick, we took him in, took her, took her in, and we brought her up till she was seven years old. Of course, we had these 23 kids. We had the eight nursing infants. She was the ninth. Said we didn't get much sleep, but our, our prayer life was tremendous. You know, we were up a lot. And uh, we raised the little girl till she was seven years old, and then she was adopted out to a wealthy family in New Delhi. We stayed in touch a little bit over the years, but 20 years later, we got a letter from London, England, with a picture in it, and this was the story that the family in New Delhi that raised her as their own found that she had musical talent. And they, they gave her piano lessons. And by the time she was 16, she was so proficient in music, so proficient on the piano, that they sent her to the London Conservatory of Music. And the picture in the envelope, she was now 27 years old, the picture in the envelope was Anna Tomasek with the royal family at Buckingham Palace having just given a concert for the royal family. It's a long way from a broken engagement in Dayton, Ohio to the border of Nepal. And it's a long way from a dung heap in Rupadia, North India to Buckingham Palace. But when you follow this Jesus and you ask the right questions, all bets are off. Anything can happen when you have a heart of compassion and service. Everything can happen when you ask the right question. Here is the God who comes along and I say, I'm drowning. I can't get out of my own junk. I don't have any purpose or meaning or dimension. I don't know if there's anything after this. And he comes along and says, anything I can do for you, both? And I say, help me. God, help me. It's the one prayer God answers, saint or sinner. God, help me. And he says, let me, let me just help you out of that. Put your feet on a solid rock and we'll go this way. When you ask somebody anything I can do for you, you sound just like Jesus. Would you bow your heart and your head with me this morning? Father, thank you for this moment. Thank you for your word. It gives us a paper trail, if you will, of how you thought what the world looked like inside your own heart and head. Help us to understand that the larger world out there that weighs a thousand trillion tons is absolutely shaped and influenced and touched by the world that weighs three pounds inside my cranium. Help me to think on these things. Help me to see the way you see by your Holy Spirit working in me every day. Help me to ask the right kinds of questions that help unlock people's doors and let them out. We would be servants like you. In Jesus' name, amen.